Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller-Karis. I'm your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, and this is Resiliency Within. Welcome to our show today. I also want to let you know that we're also streaming live on on Facebook at Resiliency Within if you want to see what we all look like today. So today's show is entitled Child Abuse Prevention in Residential Facilities, Breaking Code Silence. This is also Mental Health Awareness Month, and so it's so important that we have these two amazing guests who are going to share with us their lived experience. But I also want to um, also emphasize for all of our listeners that sometimes when we listen to a, a, a show on child abuse, we might be uh, we might touch into our own experience with child abuse. So we really want to emphasize that you're not alone and we'll be providing some resources as we go through today. But I want you all to remember that it's not your fault. It's not about being weak. It's about something happened to us as children that changed the structure of our brain and then changed the way that we experience life after that, not only physically, but also emotionally and psychologically. So our guests today, Vanessa Hughes and Catherine McNamara, will discuss the prevention of child abuse in residential facilities. Um, They are passionately committed to end child abuse and are two of the founders of Breaking Code Silence, a newly formed nonprofit that they're going to tell us about, aimed at protecting and advocating for youth in residential facilities. They both are survivors of residential facilities and will share their lived experience and discuss what's called the troubled teen industry, a multi-billion dollar industry that profits off of vulnerable children. They will discuss the abuse that happens how prevalent the facilities are today and how you can get involved for support if you're a survivor and how to become involved as an advocate. Now, through trauma-informed community projects and empowerment, survivors are breaking the code of silence previously placed on them and raising awareness to prevent future children from enduring the same harmful experiences. So I want to also let you know that one of the numbers that you can call, if sometimes you're listening there and going, oh my gosh, that was abuse, you can call Child Help, a national child abuse hotline with resources to aid in every child abuse situation 24 hours per day. The number is 1-800-4-A-CHILD, 1-800-422-4453 for help, and all calls are confidential. Now, our guests will also discuss you can, um, how, to get, how to get in touch with them, and they'll give us some information about that at the end. But I want to tell you a little bit more about them, because they are pioneers, and, and they have courage, and they have, are doing something that I think will change the child abuse that happens in residential facilities. So Catherine McNamara spent over two and a half years in two programs as a teenager. She is the investigative coordinator for Breaking Code Silence. Catherine has been a a very vocal advocate speaking out against the troubled teen industry and and advocating for evidence-based community treatment. And I'm going to ask her what that means when we, we start talking with her. 
In her years of advocacy, she's conducted multiple investigations into running and shutting down programs. She's worked with law enforcement on active investigations. Most recently, that's where I first saw her, was in Paris Hilton's documentary entitled This is Paris. Paris Hilton is also a survivor of residential treatment child abuse. Catherine also has an amazing career as a cybersecurity technical solutions architect and has worked in the field of information security in large enterprise and public sector customers. But I just have to say she is a published author, a speaker, a community leader for both her industry and advocacy groups. And I'm going to call her a pioneering feminist. I don't know if that fits, but for me, when I hear it, when I see what you're doing in, in all these different sectors, I am impressed. And Vanessa Hughes, we met during the pandemic in a really wonderful way. And she's also a survivor of Cross Creek Manor. And that's a WWASP program in Utah. And you'll explain to us what a WWASP program is, I'm sure. She is the Interim Organizational Director of Breaking Code Silence. And she has what I would call chutzpah. She has a lot of spunk. And she, when she believes in something, um, in my short time of knowing her, it seems like she really follows through. And guess what she's done in the past? She was a firefighter in the United States Marine Corps. She went on to obtain a graduate degree in marriage and family therapy, clinical psychology, theology, and intercultural studies. I don't know if you're done yet. I know that you're going to get your doctorate in July, but that's quite an impressive CV here. Vanessa is a trauma expert with extensive experience working with individuals with severe post-traumatic stress disorder and has provided treatment to veterans in community-based and VA hospital settings, including one of the few transgender clinics in the country. She has worked with mentally ill populations in community and forensic settings. In 2015, and I didn't know this about you until till you sent me your, your bio, she was named Woman of the Year by um, our congressperson, Car- Carol Liu, for her trauma-informed work. So welcome to the show, both of you as pioneering women. So as we start today, I'm going to ask each of you, you know, what's on your mind as you've heard the introductions and what's been going on for you today? So I'm going to start with Vanessa. Vanessa, what's what's on your mind as we start? Oh, gosh, right now, I'm actually just listening to you introduce us and um, kind of thinking about the other survivors that are a part of what we're doing and just really being impressed with how we've been able to kind of bring our lives uh, together, our experiences together to, um, I guess, to join together in, in what we're what we're doing. And to no long and to not be silent and to oh, be yeah. advocates. It's very impressive. And yeah. how about for you, yeah. Catherine? Is there anything on your mind as we're getting started? Uh, I think always whenever someone introduces me and like even when it's like, you know, sharing credentials that are our mind, I always feel like this little bit of imposter syndrome because it's like now I have all this to, to live up to. But uh, honestly, like um, one of, you know, Vanessa and I are in co- accomplished in our own lives, but like uh, uh, they're behind us, like in behind this, like Breaking Code Science uh, uh, nonprofit in the community are thousands of people just like us. Like, um, you know, it's estimated something like 50,000 plus kids go through these programs every year. And those kids like oh, for the last, you know, add that up for 20, 30 years, that's a lot of children and um, that are now adults that are, have lived with something like this before. And yeah, we're just two faces, but like when I when I want people to think of breaking code silence, I don't want them to think of Catherine McNamara or even Vanessa Hughes. I want them to think of like the the 
thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of of adults now that are living with this secret that, you know, still need to work through it, that are, you know, going through it every day of their lives. So as you say that, I mean, and that kind of leads me right into my one of my first questions that I want to ask you, because it's clear from meeting both of you that that you know your traumas in these residential treatment programs, as horrible as it was, that you've also become very strong advocates. And so, how has your lived experience inspired you to create the work that you're clearly passionate about in this world today? So I'm going to start with um, with you, Catherine, this time, since I started with Vanessa last time. Yeah, no problem. Um, so when I got out of the program, I was like 18 and I was actually really uh, tried to, to uh, really speak out and take action. But I was 18 years old and I was really, uh, frankly, put a hot mess. So it didn't really go anywhere. And I ended up um, in a really bad situation in life. And I kind of repressed it for the longest time. And I had a couple of friends from the program um, over the years that I stayed in contact with. And they didn't handle things the same way I did, where I just kind of pushed it down, focused on my work, and just like tried to ignore it and never talk about it. One of my really good friends, uh, his name was Brock Riley, uh, um, really like he went to the same program I went to in Mexico. And um, he really got into alcoholism and it got worse and worse for him over the years. And when he was really in his bad spot, he'd always talk about the program. And um, at the time, like to my own shame, like I, um, you know, whenever he would bring it up, I'd just be like, why are, why are you still bringing it up? Like, it's not like, you know, we're, we're alive. We just get over it. Why haven't you gotten over it? I could not let myself talk about it. And, um, you know, in 2017, he passed away because of his issues. And um, it was a real wake up call for me, to be honest, like, I realized around then that like my inability to talk to him and be a good friend to him in that regards was because, you know, honestly, like I wasn't, I hadn't worked on it myself. Like it wasn't him with the problem. It was me who, who wasn't handling, like wasn't able to uh, confront that pain in my life. And um, I started going to therapy and I, I joined a bunch of uh, Facebook groups for survivors of uh, residential treatment centers. And, um, I started digging down this rabbit hole and going deeper and deeper. And I, I was someone who had a little bit better of like financial resources and other things. So I was doing a lot of record pulls, trying to expose stuff. Like I would, I like when, when recently, like when, you know, like 2017 or 2018, when uh, one of the residential treatment owners was being sentenced, I went out to see his sentencing. I tried to get involved and do whatever I could. And I guess like all my advocacy work online eventually did uh, catch the attention of uh, the Paris Hilton people in the, the Facebook groups. And they knew that I had been around the same time as her. So they reached out and confirmed that I was there with her. A couple things I knew about her and sure enough, and it's been kind of a wild ride since like, you know, the ultimate goal is you know, not to like be on a documentary with Paris Hilton or, you know, shut down just one program. The ultimate thing is uh, goal is to make sure that there are no more you know, I think my one of my good friends says it the best, like, ultimately, when we're done with this work, we want no one left to thank us because there's no more survivors. There's no more people who are being hurt by places like this. We want, we want, um, we want to create a world and a, a, and a, a place where there's safe, evidence-based treatments available that are uh, available for children that, and that kids can't just be sent away because the parents don't want a parent. Like, in my case, I was sent away for... Uh, for uh, talking back to my parents. Uh, I didn't do drugs or any of that stuff. And, 
you know, I saw a lot of kids just like went in with like issues like that and chewed up and came out and they just like fell on their faces in life because they were so traumatized and no one believed them. So, you know, you mentioned your friend and I want to just, I want you to say his name so that we acknowledge that he didn't have the advocacy that you're talking about. And that sounds like he really, his death inspired you. Can you say his name again for us? Yeah, absolutely. Brock Riley. Brock Riley. Okay, I wanted to say Brock Riley, because we're hoping that there are no more Brock Rileys, that he wouldn't have to have that kind of ending, that he could live a life where he could be acknowledged for his strength and his, his being, and that he wouldn't have had to end his life so shortly. So thank you for sharing that um, and the very powerful statement. So going over to you now, um, Vanessa, what, what would you like to say about your lived experience and your passion? Gosh, um, I think it's interesting how um, kind of who we become is so informed with, you know, by, by where we've been. So I was at Cross Creek um, during my high school years. I was also a two-timer. <laughs> so I went um, in the mid-90s. Um, I was there for a year. I came home and then I was sent back again. And I don't have a lot of direct memories of my, of my time in Cross Creek, but I do remember being in isolation and I remember the ways that I would kind of fantasize to kind of get through that time. And I would often fantasize of, of being rescued. And I would have all, all these different kinds of, you know, circumstances that would, you know, result in all of us being released. And in large part, when I look back on those fantasies, the roles that I've kind of taken on and where I've, the Marine Corps, firefighter, you know, clinical work clergy, like all of these roles. I've been someone who's rescued. Well, and these were the places where <sighs> I would go. Like I would imagine the place burning down and the firefighters like letting it burn. I would imagine a psychologist coming in and realizing what's happening and saying it was a no-go. Um, just all these different places. And I had this realization um, back during when, when the um, protest took place, seeing the pictures um, of all of these survivors of all these kiddos who have grown up and have their skills and their talent and a voice um, and a way to be able to kind of support each other and to say, yeah, it did happen. No, you're not lying. No, it wasn't a joke. No, it wasn't, you know, whatever it might be. And kind of joining together. And I see, I guess, my role in here with this, you know, group is doing that same thing, you know, bringing kind of what I have to the table um, just kind of like putting it down and seeing how it, it, it intersects with, uh, you know, other survivors' talents. So, so uh, when, you were, when you were both talking about your advocacy and you becoming a firefighter and the different things that you would do yeah. and how you fantasized when you were in the facility, when you were in solitary confinement, yeah. um, I'm, I, is that what, are those the things that helped you get through? Because that was my next question. What are the things that during these difficult times helped you get through and do you feel like your advocacy right now is one of the the, the uh, aspects of your life that's that's helping you with what's happened to you in the past? So I'll I'll start with with Catherine this time. Oh, I actually start with Vanessa on this one. Okay, Vanessa. Okay, she's <laughs> started with me you. last time. Started with me last okay. time. <laughs> oh, she says okay. <laughs> you know, this is it's really interesting, kind of going through this experience from the inside with someone who's lived trauma, and also having you know the the academic understanding of it. And I think it's actually both. I think that I am both 
stronger than I think I've been in my life. And I think I'm also more fragile than I have been in my life. Um, I think that a lot of the, the ways that I've kind of bolstered myself um, kind of get stripped down in, in the reality of being in the survivor community. Um, the places where I think I've been able to avoid a lot of, I guess, pieces of work show up. Um, and also there's, there's a place where um, I'm grateful uh, for how I've been able to move through things. There's, there are places and there's times where I feel maybe guilty um, with where I am and, and what I, how I'm able to live compared to other survivors that are, are maybe not as functional or don't have the same resources and opportunities. Um, so I think a very honest answer is I think I'm more fragile and more strong um, in this space. I, I appreciate your honesty about that answer because I think that sometimes when, when we see people that are being strong advocates, we might have a misconception that there's no more suffering. Mm-hmm. And I always think that suffering and courage go together because if we haven't suffered, sometimes we wouldn't have had the courage to do the things, the very things yeah. that the two of you are doing. So thank yeah. you for, for, for sharing that, that the poignancy of that, um, Vanessa. So, Catherine, now back to you. Do you have something you want to say about this or not? Yeah, I was going to say that, like, you know, as far as, like, uh, my experience and li- living in this space, it is very similar to uh, to Vanessa in this, not from an academic's point of view, though, but, like, survivors come in all flavors and, and, and you know, function, you know, levels of functionality, like everyone's experience, everyone's resiliency in regards to, like, what happened to them. Because, you know, you, you, there there's no like it's not trauma olympics some people are more resilient to this you know to certain things like isolation while some aren't it will some will you know completely like fracture them for a time um going through this space though like you know i i think there is somewhat of like almost a survivor's guilt of like the people who are less functional like you you know you they need people like us to advocate, like help advocate and help fight for them if they're not able to do it themselves like even the children you know especially the children still in the program um, but at the same time, because we have that experience of being in it, and it, it does affect us, like seeing that pain, um, like having to like, you know, take reports of like stuff that's happening that are still, you know, still happening from our time in the program. I think there was a, um, a Salt Lake City, uh, a Salt Lake Tribune article uh, about some gr- a girl that was 14 years old in Provo Canyon School back in 2019. And um, what they described in like, it was a public records request. Um, it included uh, because she was a child a ward of the state and included her records from from that with her name redacted and reading through that like it was it was tough because like this child who was like 14 had been restrained over 30 times in a three-month period injected with Haldol for like 17 times and um that it is like reading that kind of stuff like is like a fire inside of me like I'm so angry that like it it drives me like like to go and 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 fight this even harder because it like kids like that shouldn't be happening, you know, 20 plus years after I've left and it's still happening. And if anything, that's worse than like how it was when I was there. But at the same time, like you like, it's so easy to also let it consume you. You have to actually like, like in order to like, uh, because we have that personal like bond to it, we have to find ways to anchor ourselves to our real lives too. And that's sometimes like a dangerous balance of like, I think that in this space, like a lot of advocates, like 
uh, kind of like have burned out because they haven't been able to do it. It's so easy to be consumed by something that's so like personally affects you. So how do you anchor yourself, um, Catherine? How do you anchor yourself? Depends on the month, um, to be fair. Uh, last couple of months, uh, I, the team has helped. I think we've all kind of helped anchor each other, to be honest. Um, um, and I think like, um, you know, leading up to like, uh, like, like in the pandemic and stuff uh, last year before the Paris Hilton documentary came out, the ways I anchored myself when we weren't getting like, at, when we were working on stuff or things were on hiatus, like I tried to do other like acts of kindness and stuff that worked, um, you know, that kind of like, that gave me more like solid results that had nothing to do with the TTI. Like um, I, I knew a friend in like uh, in New York during the like the beginning of the pandemic in April. And like I found ways to like get her masks and like get masks for her hospital mates, things like that. Things that like little mini like missions I can do where I can help out and that don't that don't directly deal with my trauma. Like those kind of things, like let me have like a reality check from like just this and not letting it uh, consume me. Other times, like it's you know, working like studying or learning something new that has nothing to do with TTI to kind of give my brain like a, a break. But like there's there, the important thing is you have to be able to have the ability to have one foot out when you need to, when you need that to take that step back and, and take a break. You know, I often call, you know, talk about this is what else is true, that there's the suffering. And you certainly, if you stay in the suffering, it can consume you. But then what else can be true in your life? And then what I'm hearing about is your generosity, your kindness, you're doing things for others that when we do that, I know we, we can feel good ourselves when that happens. And we see the joy in someone who receives something that they didn't know they were going to be receiving for something that's helping them. So that's, that's very inspiring. And, and I think what you're saying too, and I, and I love this, Catherine, about what you just said because you're doing some big things in the world and yet these kindness are little things of kindness that people aren't expecting you to do and I bet you you do some of them that people don't they wouldn't maybe would they even know it was you I don't know maybe so but I think it doesn't have to be the big things that also cultivate our well-being it can be those little things that 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 also accumulate and say oh okay I feel I feel anchored enough I can go into the next the next fight maybe because it sounds like this advocacy sometimes is facing things and saying, how could this still be going on when you talk about this 14 year old? So um, thank you for that. Yeah. I I was going to also say one other thing. Please. Uh, Being in this for five years, I can say that, uh, and that's probably good for like the people who are listening to this is that I think the important thing about this, watching so many advocates burn out, watching some of my own friends just become fragile and frazzled from it at times is that it does drive home the need for more and more and more allies who aren't just survivors to like help out and be able to be part of the movement. Well, so, and as you say that, I'm going to, I mean, this is a little bit out of the order that I had planned, but I think it's, it's important to talk about then. So how does someone like me or someone listening become an ally? Maybe we didn't have this experience, but as we hear about it, we're going, this has got to stop. How can we join um, your new endeavor to be part of the, you know, the solution and, and try to end this? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And um, you can go to, they can go to breakingcodesilence.org and, um, and there there's a volunteer sign up. I mean, we have a doc, like a psychiatrist out of France. We have a, a couple of uh, uh, like ABA and, uh, and uh, mental health professionals that have already reached out. They, they may not be survivors, but you know, having that uh, that understanding of the field without their own personal t- trauma tied to it also it really helps because, you know, it's, 
you know, we, we do need allies. It can't just be only on us. Like, re, you know, we need people who it's not just about their trauma, but about doing the right thing and wanting to be able to help. And we're, we're always welcoming to anyone who would be willing to do so. So we're almost, it's almost time to take our break. But before we do that, Vanessa, can you give us the web, the web page? I'm going to have us do it twice because I want to make sure people hear it. What is sure. the web page so people could come to learn about how they can become involved? Sure. Our website is breakingcodesilence.org. Okay, breakingcodesilence.org. I'm going to say it yes. again because this is someplace where you can go today to learn how you can become involved. Now, you also, you just recently started this this program this you just recently got all your your paperwork done and so Back you're pr- you're pretty new aren't you yeah uh, it's been it's been a long journey i mean i think advocacy for the tti is not new um and there's been a lot of feet that have walked a lot of trails and forming as an official nonprofit uh we started this about 7 7 weeks ago and in that time, we are <laughs> up and running. Um, we have over 100 uh, volunteers now um, actively working. Um, and we can talk about some of the things that we've accomplished in the past couple months after our break. But Well, I would yeah. really love for you to, to talk more about that. And also, I think it might be helpful, you know, when people are, are listening, how, how did you get into the program? What was going on? You, you said a little bit about it, Catherine. And also, you know, without going into to too much detail, it would be probably good to know what are the experiences of the program? We say, well, what is the child abuse? You know, some people may be sitting there going, well, maybe those kids deserve to go into solitary confinement because they were acting up. You know, people have all sorts of opinions about things, but I think people need to know the reality of it. Um, certainly, um, Vanessa, you have shared with me some of the details and watching the Paris Hilton documentary, which I thought was excellent about exposing what had happened. It's really important for us to know because I think that sometimes people say, oh, they're they're helping troubled children. But what I'm hearing is that maybe they are abusing troubled children. And these are things that we have to look at seriously to see how we can prevent that from happening. And I also, if I forget, I want you to remind me is I want to find out if children reach out to you on their own that are minors who know about what you're doing. So we'll hold that for after the break. So I am with Catherine McNamara and Vanessa Hughes, two survivors of residential treatment programs who are illuminating just this struggles of, that they went through and that others go through and their amazing advocacy to try to stop any more child abuse in these kind of facilities. So please stay tuned. When we come back, we will hear more from these two amazing women. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine Miller-Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. 
The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. This is Elaine Miller-Karis, and I'm, I am back with Vanessa Hughes and Catherine McNamara, and they are talking to us about their new nonprofit, Breaking Code Silence, about residential treatment programs and the child abuse that can occur in some of these programs. So I'm going to just start out with about how did you find yourself in the program and, and what led up to it? So you've touched upon it a little bit um, in your experience, Catherine, but what about you, Vanessa? How did this happen? Oh, gosh. Well, the first time, um, I think my my parents were looking for a place for me to go to finish some classes. So I've never really been good at math. So I would kind of ditch my math class and I would hang out in the drama room. And um, I'd talk on the phone after 10 o'clock at night or whatever the curfew was. So more typical teenager stuff. And so my parents wanted me to go to boarding school to finish up these classes so that it wouldn't, you know, disrupt my ability to go to college later and went to Cross Creek um, where they thought I'd be at a, at a boarding school. And while I was there, um, the reports that came back to my parents about things that I had done or my behavior um, ended up um, creating a different narrative. And so I was there for a year, um, went home. And when I got home, I, I guess I, I, responded exactly the way you would think that a teenager who had just been tortured for a year would respond and um, ended up getting sent back again um, um, middle of my junior year. Okay. And so did, did you, do your parents know now what have, what happened? 
Yeah. So and I'm just I wondering about how that becomes, you know, do they believe you? I mean, I imagine that mm-hmm. parents may be different. I don't know. Yeah. The parent's journey is, is unique as well. We talk about um, kind of coming to the realization that what we experienced was actually really not okay. So we kind of call it waking up in the community. And parents have a different journey as well. So when I talked about it with my parents when I first got home, it was very clear that I could not have that discussion. Um, that was called lying, manipulating, um, and I was threatened of being sent back. And a lot of these programs have kind of like a return policy that if, you know, the kiddo acts up, that they can go back to the program, you know, for two months for free. And anyone that's been in this program knows that if you get sent back for that reason, it's not, it's not going to be okay. Um, so my dad at the beginning, both my parents, really talked about it as though they didn't have another choice. Um, so part of what we're doing during Code Silence is really bringing to light all of the other options that exist between, you know, talking to a child and locking them up and torturing them for a year. Um, but it really wasn't until my dad watched the documentary and then he really started shifting the way he in, engaged with me about it. So, so I have this, this, this box this year, just this year, this year. Yeah. Oh my. I have this box of letters that I sent home and he sent to me that I've kept and um, he watched the documentary and I was in with a couple of clients and then I kind of came back out. He lives with us. And he said, um, do you still have all that, you know, all those letters? And I said, yeah. He said, you need to make sure that you, you know, protect that evidence. And he called it evidence. Huh. And, oh, I'm getting emotional now. So when he called it evidence, uh, for me, that was for him to kind of start, to start waking up. So um, that he, he believed you. At that moment. Yeah. Or, I mean, he's still settling, settling into that, but um, it definitely shifted from, it was your fault um, and exaggerating or, or whatever else it was to, okay, the story here is really consistent with the story that you've, you've told, you know, I'm being at a place in my life where, I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, 17 years old and, you know, trying to tell a story to prevent a consequence. You know, I'm in my forties. I'm accomplished in my life. Um, I can look back historically and identify the difference between effective, appropriate treatment and flat out abuse. And, and I, and I, I hear you saying that it's not that you don't believe that treatment um, cannot be provided and that it can be evidence-based using your words, um, um, Catherine, but to be evidence-based and, and to not be um, embedded, not to be embedded with child abuse in terms of the tactics that are used to really, it sounds like control and manipulate children. So Catherine, do you have anything to add to what Vanessa said about, um, about the experience, your experience? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of touched on how I ended up there, but right. like, I guess I should expand a little bit. Yes. Go ahead. Um, um, so when I was like, when I was 10 years old, my, my little sister died of cancer, um, after five years of, of, uh, fighting it. And, um, my parents were going through a really tough time and there was a lot of, um, stuff going on in, in, in general in my, uh, in growing up just, you know, as you can imagine, stressed out parents, grandparents with, uh, a child who was dying of cancer. And there was a lot of parent, like parenting missteps at that time. And, you know, after my sister passed away, I think my parents like kind of checked out for a couple of years. Like my mom was struggling with really bad depression and my dad, you know, with some work stuff and um, with a company falling through. And um, 
you know, at that time, like by the time my parents kind of checked back in, um, you know, I was a teenager by then I was like 13, 14 years old and I was mouthing off. I, you know, I acted out in like little ways where I would like, you know, cuss people out, but that was about it. Um, well, I cuss my parents mostly out. Um, and, um, and, um, you know, I was just kind of a mouthy teenager that, you know, was dealing with the fact that my sister had died, but also just dealing with the fact that I was, you know, I was a lesbian and I, I didn't really understand it or was getting it. And I was also dealing with the fact that I felt not largely neglected and resentful of my parents. And so, um, you know, I know that my parents got a, a, you know, at the time Provo was actually owned by a company named Charter and they got a recommendation by a therapist uh, with Charter to send me to Charter Provo Canyon School. And so I was sent away uh, there and I, you know, I, within hours of like an hour of being there, they made me sit against a wall. And like I was, I was first getting there, I was immediately strip searched, forced to like squat to make sure I wasn't hiding anything inside myself. Um, I was crying and upset and angry. They made me take a chair in front of a wall and just stare at a wall for like an hour. And then when they told me to get off of it, uh, off the chair, I refused and I told them to go F themselves. And uh, I was immediately thrown into isolation. And I was, I spent like, you know, three to four months on and off in isolation from uh, that time I was there. Um, I eventually kind of like conformed. And um, after spending about uh, almost a year there, I was eventually sent home. And that first time there was actually when I, I met Paris. Um, uh, the second, you know, and then when I got home, I didn't really fit in because I had this forced like traumatic, like uh, maturity. Like I didn't fit in with kids of my own age. I didn't fit in with people who were adults because that maturity is almost like a, you know, is, you know, kind of a like a projected self that you had to like, you know, that like a bubble, like a conformed behavioral thing that you had to like pretend Catherine, to be. Can I ask you, did anybody ask you what happened? Was there anyone there to listen to you in terms of the scope of the degree of abuse that you had experienced or not? To be fair, um, I personally, like, here's the thing, like, and this is why it takes a lot of children a while to wake up, so to speak, is that you get out of that and you don't really, like, you don't usually figure out that you were, uh, that it was abuse. Like, you don't think that, like, sitting in a cold room wearing barely nothing and freezing for hours, uh, for days on end, it, like, it doesn't click the same way. Like, adults did this to me. My parents are paying them, so it must not be actually illegal or abusive. Um, and you know, I was 14 and I was 15 when I got what almost 15 when I got out. And so, um, uh, I, when I got home, I, I'm a two for like Vanessa, um, I didn't really fit in. And I eventually like went to online internet schooling for high school. And because, um, because I was like online and like meeting people that way, and I was able to connect with them, like on an intellectual level, I started getting into like stuff like phone freaking, uh, which is like phone hacking. So I could make long distance calls and talk to my friends and I got more creative and stuff. And I still, you know, that was my little rebellion. I was being able to like, like, like hack computers, phones, things like that. And like, you know, it made me feel like, oh, like I've, you know, I, I like figuring stuff out. Like I like solving a puzzle. And obviously my parents didn't like that. And um, I think at like, by the time I was 16 and a half, my parents decided they were going to send me away again. But this time uh, I definitely probably, like, I think they got a sense that I would not go willingly. So um, this time I was woken up in the middle of the night by uh, escorts, like, you know, they're basically paid child abductors. I was thrown in the back of a car and I was driven down to Mexico to a program that was a sister program to Vanessa's. Um, 
And I remember, and I was there for that one that's for six months and it was called Casa by the Sea. It's no longer open. And um, I remember like the first time I was at Provo, I looked at that and I was just like, even though I knew it was wrong, like, or like some level, I knew I didn't like it. I didn't understand it was wrong. When I was at Casa by the Sea, like I looked around and I saw some horrible stuff, like things that kids shouldn't have to go through. And like, I was older and I understood like, and I was already resentful of the fact that I had like kind of conformed for Provo. And I was looking around and I was like, this is BS. Like this is wrong. And, um, I was there for six months. My parents decided that it wasn't for me and they sent me back to Provo and I was at Provo Canyon school for another year until I turned 18 and signed myself out. And when I got out, like the second time, like there was like this realization in me that that was wrong. That was not, that should not happen to kids. Like those places should not be open. And so I lashed out and I tried and, you know, like the kind of like lashing out an 18 year old, like chaotic and a chaotic, like just freshly traumatized, like 18 year old can, you know, does when they rage against the machine. And I like, but like, I felt powerless at the end of it. I felt like, like I had no, uh, no way to like, no one believed me when I told people about it. I was like, you know, immediately like, why would your parents send like the first thing they focused on was why would your parents send you to a place like that? You must've been really bad. There must've been something wrong. Like nobody's just sent to a place like that for mouthing off or for this or for that. And I was like, I, um, you know, and I, you know, eventually shut up about it. And I think that a lot of kids before this documentary, I think a lot of kids came out of that, like thinking that they were not like the same thing. Like you're not well accomplished. Like by the time you're, you're respected in the world, like you've got a degree or you've got a professional career is the time that like nobody, people will just say, well, it was so long ago. We can't really do anything about it. Now there's the statute of limitations, things like that. The, the most powerful part of the Paris Hilton documentary isn't the fact that like a celebrity said it, like a celebrity like Paris Hilton, you know, was in it. It's the fact that it gave permission for people to say when they, when they're 18 years old and they just went through it, Hey, that was wrong. That shouldn't have happened to me. And a lot of other people are saying it too. And so then that really has been a catalyst for the movement becoming bigger, that documentary. I mean, that's what seems to have happened. Absolutely. And so, and that's so true. And I think our, our listeners need to know, how do you know something is child abuse? You're a child. And so your parents have sent you somewhere. You've been treated very badly, but you may not make the connection that this is child abuse. And so we okay. want to make it very clear that treating children and tying them up in a room and putting them into with barely any clothes on is not okay and would be considered child abuse that if a parent did it in their home and they were found out about it, there could be a child abuse um, uh, investigation and the parents would, you know, probably have to go through some kind of program in order to not do that to their children. And I think this is the, this is the, the, I think the horror of that it's institutionalized. So in some ways it almost gives it greater permission to exist than if it well, was it's, it, individual child abuse. Go ahead. Yes. Oh, uh, I was just going to say it goes deeper than the isolation rooms. Cause I think like, that's one thing that like Vanessa and I have a very shared experience about, but like some of the stuff I saw, like rape reenactments, telling people like uh, that they're responsible for their rape because they chose to associate with people like that. They chose to get out of bed that morning, whatever else watching people, uh, you know, basically tear down women and, 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 uh, or boys and girls basically telling them what, like 
to the point like repeating daily to them what what a pile of crap they are and tearing them down because they think that behavioral modification of tearing them down to the base of what they are will rebuild them in what they want it to be like people come out maybe behaving in a certain way like behaving like they've conformed but that all that trauma all that tearing down all that abuse all that you know like I, like I knew about physical, sexual, and uh, emotional abuse to like the depths of like, you know, I should have not like as somebody who was just all I did was like mouth off to my parents. I shouldn't have memories of like seeing or knowing this stuff was happening. And yet, you know, between the two programs I was at, I saw like I have these. I have a childhood now that's not only like where I was ripped away from my family that I you know thought cared about me that I never felt like that I felt was a safe place, but I also have these memories of other kids around me being hurt. And, you know, like, you know, it's, it, nobody should, it, it's secondary trauma, even if right. it's not directly happening. And that, and that to vicarious you. trauma, we know that just witnessing someone going through those horrors that you're describing mm-hmm. can be the same inside of our mind and body as if we physically had that experience ourselves. So we also really want to underscore that to our listeners that you don't have to have that lived experience to actually experience it as a trauma and to develop post-traumatic stress injury. Witnessing is very powerful. So, you know, I want to, I want to segue. And so I, I want to ask you that question. Did your parents ever come to the point of understanding the abuse that had happened um, for you, Catherine, or not? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, actually, I um, I'm a very very. Now I'm going to say this um, uh, because uh, that my my situation is a corner case because uh, most of the survivors I talk with every day, there's this level of denial, like a large level of denial of parents, and I think that it's a little bit of guilt too because no parent wants to think that they just spent like fifty, sixty thousand dollars traumatizing their kid and that they have some semblance of responsibility towards it. So they'd write like, it's, you know, it's kind of terrifying. So there's a level of denial there, but my, my parents, when I got out of the program, like they absolutely steadfast, like would not talk to me about it and they would not talk about it. They, every time I brought it up, um, why are you bringing up the past? Blah, 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 blah. And in me, like our relationship suffered for years and years and years because there's always this resentment of like them blocking it out. And so I went years where I wouldn't talk to my parents and it wasn't till about like 2017 um, that we finally had an honest conversation about it. And my mom admitted that the reason why she wouldn't talk about it for so many years was because she knew it was wrong and that she was ashamed of it. And um, mm-hmm. that, you know, she said, like, take it from a much wiser mother now. Like, I, you know, if I knew if I knew what I knew now, I would have never sent you away. I, you may have rebelled or whatever else or mouthed off. But I would have, you know, I would have given you the space for you to kind of explore and figure out your teenagehood instead of trying to grab on and control so tightly. And so what you just said is really important. I want us to, we, we don't, we have a few minutes left and I really want um, to talk a little bit and segue. First, I want to acknowledge both of you for sharing these, these very difficult stories and to thank you for that. But what do you hope to accomplish with Breaking Code Silence? If you could spend a few minutes just talking about that in the time that we have left. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll answer it that one. So, so yeah, so last week, um, just kind of an example of kind of what's what's happening within all this. So last week we had um, a student who's in a program um, who is on pass with their parent reach out to one of our TikTokers. Um, and the the volunteer, we're on Slack. That's kind of our mission control page, right? So she reaches out, asks, you know, what, what do I need to ask this, this you know, kiddo? So we're throwing questions 
And then there's enough reported that I'm able to call and file a child abuse report. But I don't have all the information that is being requested on the other side. So we had to kind of go back and forth. So I'm on the phone making a report, getting information from the rest of the team saying, please send me all of the information on this particular facility. We end up getting to um, the social worker who was going to go in and make a report. We were able to get all the information that the investigative teams, the reporters um, have been able to put together. Um, and they are actively investigating that, that, that school right now. Um, so I think with all of what I would hope for with this organization, there's, this stuff is already illegal. You're not allowed to abuse kids. Like we, you can't abuse kids. That's just not okay. Uh, we are one of very few countries that upholds, um, child rights. So I hope that the end of this is, um, upholding rights for children, um, and really reforming the industry and closing the gaps right? Calling and making a child abuse report, calling against, you know, therapist license, calling, you know, the facilities and the way that they're managed. We have gone at all of these um, systems that are in place and it fails. Um, we have made, I think in one state, we submitted 200 reports from survivors with information, with screenshots, with failed records. And it's always somebody else's scope. Um, so I think that my hope would be that this organization is able to put things together in such a way that the systems in place are either reformed and get better at protecting the children rather than conforming to their policies um, or that we, you know, and I read that, that Paris Hilton went to testify in front of the legislature. And yeah. so that are you find your, you think you're going to be doing that kind of advocacy as well? And it's a multi, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's 50 states for, you know, changing legislation. It's therapists, social workers, psychologists in 50 different states. Um, and I think that's where, that's where I think we get exhausted. And this is where it needs to be a larger movement than just, you know, a bunch of red tag, you know, survivors kind of over here. <laughs> As one well, of our, and, said, Emily says, it's. Yeah, but it sounds like you are developing a mm -hmm. a large bucket of folks yes. that are there by your side. Large bucket, and we want yes. more. We want more. We want more folks. So I'm uh, going to ask um, I'm going to ask Catherine too if you have anything to add to that as well, Catherine, about what you're hoping that breaking code silence can do on top of what Vanessa has shared. Um. So I mean, obviously, I, maybe I'm a bit ambitious, and uh, you know, obviously, it's going to be up to leadership of, of breaking code science to ultimately determine um, what the realistic realistic scope. Uh, but you know, obviously, changing legislation from a federal and state by state level is big. But once that legislation is is enacted, you know, we have to also make sure that their those programs are like or any any of treatment facility is still following it. So reporting and oversight and helping enabling survivors to be able to, uh, to report um, research, obviously like this is a, this is an industry that has uh, has had a blind spot when it comes to, to, to independent and evidence-based like research, like peer reviewed research. And so it really does need research um, and the survivors themselves, like, we do need services to provide them for with mental health, uh, with mental health uh, and uh, treatment options. The, the problem is like, even if we, let's say we shut down all the programs tomorrow and we found like everything works out, there's no more survivors. There's still an existing survivor community that needs that evidence-based 
Yeah. yeah. So um, are there are there any um, residential treatment programs in your experience that you will you recommend or no. or all of them? There's none that you recommend I, at this point. I, I'm not gonna. Um, the problem I'm gonna with trying to recommend a good program, like there might be like there there might be like short term like uh, inpatient therapy that it, for the duration of a crisis that you need to like like let's say someone is actively suicidal mm-hmm. and there's no choice they need to go inpatient for like a week and then transition to like intensive outpatient. That that's fair, but if when I start getting into like situations where I recommend a specific place or something along those lines, or say that like there are some good programs, what happens if it's not actually a good program, right. or if it's you know it turns out later the problem right. with that is now like breaking code silence or somebody from breaking code silence has just made a recommendation that's turns out to be abusive. Yeah. So w- what I'm really hearing then is is you want to put in the safety net. You want the evidence, you want the research so that if there are things that work that help children that are suffering, that it's not just at the whim of someone's idea, that it's based in science and also that it's also based in really a consciousness about people working in an ethical and professional way when they're treating our, our precious children who may be suffering. Well, we, I also have a, a novel yes, idea that, yes, go that ahead. in my eye, uh, even if somebody needed a, a treatment that required a little bit longer residential stay, so like maybe like a month or two or something, I don't think that they should be kidnapped in the middle of the night or be sent no. so far away. From, like they need to be like the ability that the parents can and the family can actually stay. The, the community that they are tied to can still come and visit them during their duration. Like if you put someone in short-term residential treatment for like a week or two for that cr- crisis, it's usually somewhere close by. Like trusting that you know three yeah, states the, away that everything's the, the parents- fine the parents and family can be together. Our time is quickly slipping away. So I really want to invite you two to come back again and share w- with us more as you go through your journey, as you're just starting. So let's revisit your journey in a couple months, because I, I think this is an important topic that we do not want to, we don't want to leave behind. But I also want to say that if any of you are in crisis, if any of you have been, if you're a survivor of child abuse, there is a crisis text line for help. It's 741 741. You can text them a message and they have crisis counselors that are there to support you. And so in your own organization, can you tell us again how to get a hold of you? Sure. Our website is breakingcodesilence.org. And so I just want to say as we're, we're ending, thank you so much, um, Vanessa and Catherine, for sharing your story. And I want to just say to our lis- listeners, as you walk through your journey and you are a survivor of child abuse, remember you're not alone. Listen to the stories of these two women that they're reaching out to all of us in and I think in the world, not just the United States. So, and as our guests are showing to us that something happened to you, it's real, and that you can you can find your strength sometimes with help from others. And, and also remember, you know, what are those things that help you get through difficult times? And both of you have shared such amazing stories. So I thank you so much. And we will, hearing, we will be hearing more from Breaking Code Silence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.
Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com.